So if you stand for the reading of God's word, as Pastor Bruce said, we're starting a new series, uh, Genesis, the epic story of beginnings. So it seems appropriate that we start in Genesis 1. So follow along with me as we read in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as a congregation, ready, willing to hear the words you have to speak to us, God. And that you would plant a seed in us that would help us grow and take from this to be more Christ-like and a better follower of you, God. Please give Pastor Bruce the words to speak this morning. And please... Once again, thank you for your son. In your name, amen. Where we are going over the next several weeks in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. With that overview in mind, on Christmas Eve 1968, the three astronauts of Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon and they headed for home. As their tiny capsule floated through space, suddenly over the horizon of the moon, they saw the glistening blue and white hues of Earth slowly fill their window. And in that moment, those sophisticated men, trained in science and technology, did not stop to quote Einstein or Shakespeare or Darwin. Only one thing could capture the magnificence of the moment. Billions of people around the world heard the voice from outer space as the astronaut began reading, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that moment, no other words would do. Nothing makes sense without God. The reading from Genesis was so iconic that in 1969, the U.S. Postal Service released a commemorative stamp for the Apollo 8 mission that featured the famous Earthrise photo taken from lunar orbit as well as the first words from Genesis, in the beginning, God. As we begin this new series in Genesis, there's really no other way to approach the book of Genesis but to recognize that everything begins with God. The name Genesis, as you saw in the video, means beginnings or origins. And it's a perfect title because Genesis is all about beginnings. It's all about the first. In Genesis, we see the beginnings of such things as the universe, the human race, marriage, family, sin, murder, death, government, cities, nations, languages, and even salvation. Astounding, because what we know about God, what we know about creation, about humanity and salvation, all begins in Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 11, which we will focus on. Now, personally, I'm convinced that we need to go back to the beginning. Our culture is like a ship without a rudder. And so we need this book of Genesis. We need specifically Genesis chapter 1 through 11 to guide our lives through a sea of relativism in which we find ourselves. So here's the importance of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. The importance is this. 
Genesis 1 through 11 lays the foundation for the rest of God's Word. Genesis 1 through 11 is foundational to everything else God reveals in Scripture. And so the rest of the Bible assumes a proper understanding of Genesis. Why? Because almost every doctrine is developed later in the Bible is rooted in the book of Genesis. Kent Hughes writes, Genesis provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. James Merritt, I love what he says here. He, Genesis is the front door to the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 is the knob that turns the door. And Ray Pritchard put it this way, Genesis 1-11 through 11 is the seed plot of the entire Bible. What the acorn is to the oak tree, so these chapters are to the rest of the Bible. These are the headwaters of divine revelation. Everything God wants us to know starts right here in the book of Genesis, and specifically in Genesis 1 through 11. And so Genesis is God's eyewitness testimony to the creation of the world in human history, which is why liberals and skeptics attack this book in particular so relentlessly. Abandon Genesis 1 through 11 as unfactual, as unreliable, as mere mythology and unacceptable to science, and Satan has won the day. Satan hates this portion of God's Word because of its message to us. Genesis 1 through 11 establishes that there is a God who reigns supreme over the universe. Genesis 1 through 11, it tells us that God created us in his image. It tells us that God established how he wants his creation to live on earth. And therefore, we are totally accountable to this creator God. And for this reason, I believe the real issue is not so much it's intellectual, rather it is a spiritual issue. Now, you don't have to check your brains at the door to become a Christian, but you do have to submit your will to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And if you are willing to accept the first verse of the Bible as truth, as God's truth, it lays not only the foundation for the rest of God's Word, but it actually lays the foundation for our lives. Now, before looking at this first verse in the Bible, let's see the background to Genesis. Notice here in your notes, the author of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, is Moses. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is called the Pentateuch. Jesus claimed Moses wrote the first book, books of the Bible when he said in John chapter 5, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And Jesus he actually regarded Genesis not just as the words of Moses, but Jesus regarded it as the very words of God. For instance, when Jesus was asked a question about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, he answered by quoting two verses from Genesis as if they were the definitive authority on the subject and the ultimate author was God himself. 
In the same way, the New Testament looks back to Genesis again and again as authoritative, assuming it to be God's word to us. In fact, Genesis is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's quoted more than 100 times in the New Testament. Most Bible scholars believe that Moses wrote Genesis around the year 1400 B.C., which means Moses wasn't around at the beginning of creation. But he was a messenger for the one who was. Moses was a prophet. He was a man who spoke for God and received revelation from God, which he recorded for the people of God. And that's what happens in the book of Genesis here. He is writing for the people of God after the facts have already happened. And he's recording it for us as revelation from God to himself. So Moses is the author. But what's the purpose of the book of Genesis? Well, notice this in your notes. The purpose of Genesis is to correct and shape Israel's worldview before entering the promised land. Genesis was specifically written as the Israelites were traveling through the desert, preparing to enter the promised land. It's written to them. As God's people dreamed of entering the promised land, they would naturally begin to ask questions that we even ask today. Like, who was this God who rescued us from the bondage in Egypt? Where did we come from? And what is the purpose of our lives? What is the purpose of our, of our existence in the promised land? And so God met Moses with his word to answer these questions for his people, the Israelites. Moses wanted them to know that God was behind all of their history. Therefore, they could trust God to fulfill his promises to them as they entered into Canaan, the promised land. Genesis, in, in great ways, was written to correct and even shape Israel's worldview, a view that had been twisted by the Egyptian culture in which they are fleeing from. We're not wandering through the same desert as the children of Israel, but we are struggling with the same twisted worldview, a view that needs to be corrected, a view that needs to be shaped by the word of God and his truth. We are staring hostility toward Christians and uncertainty about the future in the face. And we don't necessarily need more information or facts. We need a story. We need God's story of redemption and restoration. And so for this reason, Genesis shouldn't be read as a science textbook. It's a narrative. It's an unfolding drama. It's a story. And to say that it's a story doesn't mean that it's not true, nor that it lacks scientific accuracy. What it means is that Genesis wasn't written to answer all of our modern-day scientific questions. Rather than answering the questions we might have about creation and everything else Genesis 1 would lead us to ask, in Genesis, God begins to answer the questions that we should be asking. He's answering questions he wants us to ask. And he's leading us to the revelation of those answers. 
The theme, then, of Genesis is God's sovereign grace in human history. This is fantastic. This is amazing. This is astounding. The first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with humanity and focus on four great events. You have creation in chapters 1 and 2. You have the fall of man, Adam and Eve, and the consequences of their sin in chapters 3 and 5. You have the great worldwide flood in chapters 6 through 9. And then you have the rebellion at the Tower of Babel in chapters 10 and 11. But that's where... In these chapters, this is where we see God's amazing grace. And it's amazing because in all of these stories that are thread throughout Genesis 1 through 11, there is this increasing avalanche of sin and resulting punishment that is increasingly severe. But there is always more grace. Adam and Eve sin, and they are punished by God. But God graciously withholds the death penalty. That's grace. Cain kills Abel and is banished from his family. But God graces him with the mark of protection. More grace. Humanity rebels against God and the flood comes. But God graciously preserves the human race through Noah. Again, we see more grace. It's only in the case of Babel where grace is muted, but still present in the dispersion of humanity. In other words, Genesis is the story of God's sovereign grace in human history. Truly, then, what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sums up this major theme in Genesis. Just think. We, we here, we are created in God's image, and yet we are corrupted by sin. We are at the same time truly wonderful and truly awful. The bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. Even the best of the patriarchs in chapters 12 through 50 are helpless and hopeless sinners. So Genesis helps us see from the very beginning that we need God's grace. And it is only by God's grace that we are redeemed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with this background in mind, let's focus in on the very first verse of Genesis. The most important fact about this first verse is that we meet God for the very first time. This morning I want us to consider the first four words of Genesis, in the beginning, what is it? God. These four words are not just the first four words of the book of Genesis. Listen, they are first and foremost, the first revelation we have of God. Genesis 1 isn't so much about explanation as it is about exaltation. In the beginning, who? God. All creation is by God. All creation is for God. It's all for His glory. It is not in the beginning me. It is in the beginning who? God. So let's unpack what God reveals to us in these first four words of His book of Genesis. 
Number one, we are given the very first declaration of God. We are given the first declaration of God. How many times does the name God appear in just this first chapter of Genesis alone? Well, in the first 31 verses of Genesis chapter 1, God is mentioned some 35 times so that it catches the reader's eye again and again and again. So it's no accident that God is the subject of the very first verse of the Bible because his name dominates the whole first chapter of the Bible. So on the very first page of Scripture, the Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of God. And you know what? It keeps us there. Derek Kinder makes this point. The first chapter, and indeed the entire book of Genesis, is about God from the first to last. And to read it any other way is to misread it. Genesis chapter 1 is more than a revelation of creation. It is a revelation of the Creator. God is revealing himself to us. God is introducing himself to us. He is making himself known to us. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozier writes, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. So what comes then to your mind when you think about God? Everybody, whether they realize it or not, is a theologian, the study of God. The question is, are you a good theologian? Genesis helps us. It makes us good theologians. It gives us a proper understanding of who God is. In fact, there are three great truths about God that are declared in the very first words here, of the book of God's Word. Notice that the first truth declared to us is the very existence of God. The existence of God is declared. There it stands in all its glory. The opening statement of Scripture. In the beginning, who? God. I'm struck by the fact that this is a declaration. It's not an argument. God declares that He exists. And in so doing, he exposes the foolishness of atheism, which is the belief that there is no God. Genesis 1.1 does not seek to prove the existence of God. It simply proclaims the existence of God. It does not argue God's existence. It assumes God's existence. In fact, what Genesis 1.1 is doing for us, it is drawing a line in the dirt. We either accept God's existence or we reject God's existence. As A.W. Pink points out, false religions and human philosophies begin with man and in some cases seek to work up to God. But the Bible begins with God as the one who was in the beginning, the one who made all that is. We must, in our thinking, begin with God. He is the source of all else. Psalm 14.1 tells us that only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Yet Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that every person, every person knows through conscience and through God's creation that there is a God. But in our sinfulness, we suppress this truth about God, which is why we need God's grace to believe 
in the beginning, who? God. The second truth that is revealed to us here, declared to us in these first four verses, is the eternalness of God. The eternalness of God. The Bible does not say, at his beginning, God. No, it says, in the beginning, God. The idea is that when the beginning began, God was already there. So we find a beginning, but not a beginning of God. God existed before he created the heavens and the earth, which refutes the folly of pantheism, which is the belief that equates creation itself as God. Perhaps you've wondered, and you're not necessarily ignorant to wonder this, even sinful to wonder this, but who created God? And the answer is no one created God. God was there before the beginning. God is eternal and uncreated. He was, he is, and he will always be. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so if you want something to really boggle your mind, meditate on the fact that God is eternal. He has neither beginning nor ending. It's hard for us to imagine, to comprehend such a thing. It's hard for us to comprehend something without a beginning. But there has never been a moment when God did not exist. In Isaiah 57, 15, God describes himself as one who inhabits eternity. Genesis 1.1 declares that the universe had a beginning, but its creator did not, for he is eternal. The third truth that is declared to us in these first four words is the exclusiveness of God. The exclusiveness of God is declared. Genesis 1.1 stands against polytheism, which is simply the belief that there is more than one God. When it declares, in the beginning, God. God was not one among many gods. He was the only God. Now we know that man, in his sinfulness, has made many false gods to worship. But the creator God is the one true living God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. And so before Genesis was ever written, the surrounding nations had all of their false gods. What did the Israelites face when they lived in Egypt? They faced polytheism. The Egyptians worshipped Many false gods. The Israelites flee Egypt. Moses is leading them from the bondage of slavery. The Israelites are now preparing to enter Canaan, the promised land. And what would they face when they arrive in the promised land? More polytheism. The Canaanites also worshipped many false gods. And so Moses' purpose, at least in part, is to correct and to shape their worldview when it comes to the one true God. 
Moses writes to the Israelites, in the beginning, God. Who existed in the beginning? Was it Anton, the Egyptian sun god? No. Was it Bel, the Canaanite fertility god? No. In the beginning, there was just one God, the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the deliverer of Israel and our redeemer. And so Genesis 1 declares that there is one true God and in so doing refutes the false gods of the surrounding nations in Israel's day and even the false gods in our day. In the beginning, God gives us the first declaration of who he is. But that's not all. With these first four words, number two, we are given the foundational description of God. As God introduced himself, he revealed himself as God. Now, there are actually, in the word of God, there are many, many names for our God. And each name of God that you read in the Bible is a revelation of him, of who he is, of his character, of his attributes. And so the name that God uses to reveal himself for the first time here in Genesis chapter 1 is rather significant. The name for God here in Genesis 1-1 is the name Elohim. It's a Hebrew name. And this particular name for God, Elohim, appears over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And so it is a foundational name for our God at the very beginning. God wanted us to know him as Elohim. Now, what is the big deal about that? What does that name mean? What does Elohim communicate to us? What do we learn from this name? Well, this name... Elohim describes two truths about God. Notice the first truth. Elohim points to the supremacy of God's power. The name Elohim means God of power. Its name, it's a name that points to God's power and strength. It indicates that God is mighty in his creating power. The first thing God reveals about himself is that he is the powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. And so what is God doing here? He's telling us something about himself. He's telling us that there is nothing impossible for him to do. Nothing. He is a God of unlimited power. Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. In the beginning, God declared himself to be the God of power. And do you realize that throughout all the rest of Scripture and history, God has displayed just that. God over and over again has displayed his unlimited power to us again and again and again. So the very first truth about the name Elohim, it points us to the supremacy, to the majesty, if you will, of the power of God. But there's a second truth about this name. Elohim, number two, also points us to the mystery of the Trinity. This is significant. The name Elohim is a plural 
now. Which means God is letting us know that he is plural even as he is singular. Now that will boggle your mind. And if you're wondering how in the world is that possible, it's because our God is made up of three persons. And as we read the rest of Scripture, we are introduced not only to God the Father, but we are introduced to God the Spirit, and eventually we are introduced to God the Son. In God, there are three distinct persons, and all of them are the one true God as the Trinity. As we read further here in Genesis chapter 1, we can see this triune God present and working at the moment when the universe came into existence. We have God the Father in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have God the Spirit in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And who? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you're probably wondering, well, where's God the Son? I don't see him here. Well, the Apostle John, you go to the Gospels here in the New Testament, and the Apostle John answers that for us when he writes in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and the wording, ironically, is somewhat the same here. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So who is this Word? John, in the rest of John chapter 1, tells us. In fact, you drop down to verse 14, and he tells us that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the point of all this is simply to say that if you know Jesus and his spirit lives within you, then the eternal God of Genesis chapter 1 is not some strange unknown deity. Listen, he is your Savior and Lord. Which brings us to the third truth that we are given in the first four words of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, who? In the beginning, who? God. God. And in the beginning, God, we are now given the featured desire of God. With the first four words of the Bible, God is making himself known. God wanted to be known as the all-powerful creator God. And so he began time as we know it, and he created a universe. And in that universe, God created a particular planet called Earth. And he prepared that Earth for the human race. God first created Adam and Eve in his image. And it was to them he first revealed himself. And the question is, why? What is God's desire in revealing himself to Adam and Eve and to us today through his word and his spirit. It's this right here. Notice it in your notes. God's desire is that we know him and make him known. 
You see, God has revealed himself to humanity so that we may know him. God wants us to know him in a personal, intimate way and to make him known to the rest of the world. Now, we understand this relationally. We understand that if you want someone to know you, then you must make yourself known to that person. This is not a novel idea. As a young man, there was a particular beautiful young lady that I wanted to make myself known to. Why? Because I wanted her to know me. She happened to be going to this church. She knew of me, she knew my name, but she didn't know me. So in an effort to make myself known, I approach her. I make myself known. I talk to her. I ask her out. We go on dates. We talk. We communicate. And in that process of making myself known, she knows me and I know her. And sooner than later, nine months later, she became my wife, my beautiful bride. We understand this. In somewhat the same way, God stepped out of eternity into history and made himself known so that we may know him personally and intimately. Genesis 1 through 3 tells us that Adam and Eve knew God and that Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship, personal fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. In fact, we know that God would come down and he would walk with them in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden and communicate with them, fellowship with them. But Adam and Eve sinned against God, and as a result of their sin, they were banished from the garden and separated from God. But God left them with the promise of rescue and hope in the coming Redeemer, grace. This is why God sent the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to undo what the first Adam did by living a perfect life and dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to God. And so now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can know God too, like Adam and Eve. We can have personal fellowship with our Creator, God. You see, God's desire for us to know Him, even in Jesus' prayer, in John 17, 3, when Jesus cries out to his Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our Bible begins with four words. In the beginning, God. And I put forth to you that this is where true wisdom begins. True wisdom begins with joyful submission to, in the beginning, God. That's why Genesis 1-1 is the very first verse of the Bible. Because this is where wisdom begins. You skip this, and nothing else in the Bible will make sense. You skip this, and you'll miss the central fact of the universe. You skip this, and you'll spend your life questioning the rest of God's word as truth. You skip this, and you'll never understand where you came from, why you are here, and where you are going when you die. And so I say it again. True wisdom begins with joyful submission to in 
the beginning. Who? God. It's interesting what the Apostle Peter exhorts us to do. 1 Peter 4.19. He exhorts us to entrust our souls, to entrust our lives, to commit our lives, to submit ourselves to God who is a faithful creator. But if we are not willing to do that, if we will not submit to the God that is revealed in the very first verse of the Bible, then we will have no reason to submit our lives to anything else God says in the rest of the Word. If God did not create the heavens and the earth, then by all means, live any way you want. By all means, do your own thing. By all means, live as you please. Eat, drink, and be merry. But if we believe, and if we submit ourselves to the first four words of this verse, that God created everything, including humanity, then there are definite implications for us. If God created me, then he knows me. He sees me. He knows the truth about me. And I cannot hide from him. And I must someday answer to him. This is the inescapable consequence of the first verse in God's word. If we believe in the beginning God, then we should gladly bow before him in obedience in worship. This is what this verse is driving home to us. Because of him we live. He alone is Elohim. And so may we as LifeBridge, may we as Christ followers, may we here this morning, may we joyfully submit to in the beginning God. This is where true wisdom begins. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as it's been prayed already as needy people, people who are in great need of your grace. And Lord, the good thing is that is what you give us. You reveal yourself to us as our creator God. But not only that, in our sinfulness, you are also our redeemer in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, even now, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to accept and believe these first four words in Genesis. To submit ourselves to your authority, to your supremacy, to the fact that you are God and God alone. In the beginning, God. Allow that, Lord, to make a difference in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.